You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So in 1 Thess 4, talking about God's view on sexuality. We got a PG. I think everyone in here is going to be safe. Sometimes in the morning, there's little ones in here, and I'm like, but I think, I think we're good here tonight. So last time we were talking about what Paul has been talking about is this idea of this is an awesome community of believers. He's so encouraged by them. He's, he loves them. He's heard about how they're continuing to walk in their faith. And we talked about this idea of mature Christian love in the sense of relationships, marriages, friendships, community, all of those things. And we talked about this weird dichotomy that he's describing where it's, we're really close, but we're also willing to be parted because of, for the sake of the gospel, that we're serving and yet willing to be served, that we're inward facing, we're, we're getting to know each other and going deep with one another, but we're not excluding those who are outside the group, we're welcoming. And that the way that we do this is by being centered on the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. That these are extremes that are easy to err on one side or the other, and most of us do, but that when we walk with God and we walk in the counsel of his word, we begin to have an understanding of God's view and God's purpose for our relationships with one another. And so as he digs into that, an understandable question then would come up, well, what about the most intimate kinds of things. What about sex? And that's where he goes in the beginning of chapter four. He says, finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. As we have taught you, you live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, God's will for us is for you to be holy, to so stay away from sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God in his ways. Now there's a lot of churchy words in there. And I want to just take a moment to explain some of those churchy words because this was originally written in Greek, okay? And he's not using words that would have been tied to churchiness the way that it is 2,000 years later. He's using words that have specific meaning to them in their context. This word holy is hagizasmos. And all this word means is dedicated in the service to God and not necessarily dedicated in the sense of like, I'm dedicated to my job. It's like, set apart. It's live your life in such a way that God's will for you is that you stand out from everybody else that doesn't know him, that you are set apart in a way that contrasts how you live to the way that other people live. And what he's doing here is he's making a point that Christians who really want to live for God 
This is one of the ways, this is one of the most outstanding ways, one of the most obvious ways, one of the most powerful ways that we can stand out from the rest of culture. So that's what he means when he says holy. And then when he says sexual sin, I've been in a lot of conversations with a lot of teenage boys over the years who want a very clear definition of what this is, right? And this word in the Greek actually is pornea, which is the word that we get pornography from. But what this is talking about is all manner of lustful acts, but primarily the way that it is used has to do with having sex with someone you're not married to. So follow the thinking here. God wants you to be distinct and set apart unlike anyone else in this case, by only having sex with your spouse. That's it. But this is this powerful witness that he wants us to have. He says, don't be like everyone else. The pagans, that word pagan, that's got like a real negative connotation to it. That word pagan literally means country folk in Greek. Because what it was was the people that were uh, in the time that, that Paul was writing, the Pagani were sort of the, the average folks who lived outside of the city, and they were polytheists. And so he doesn't mean it in a derogatory term. He's basically just saying, stand out in the way you live because everyone around you is not living in a healthy sexual ethic but you should because you're set apart for God's service. So if we take everything he said there and we just kind of boil it down to the core meeting, he's saying, live in a way that pleases God, be distinct in the way that you live by not letting your lusts rule your life. That's it. Don't let your lusts rule your life and allow yourself to stand as a beacon, as an example for what real love is by being self-controlled. Why does God care? Why does God care about our sex life? You know, a lot of people are like, this is ancient thinking, this is so old fashioned, it's so stodgy, it's prudish. You know, this had meaning back then where if you got pregnant or you had sex before marriage, you would be shunned by society. But we live in the 21st century. We've outgrown all of that. We have a much more liberated view of human sexuality and don't try to put these shackles of old-fashioned morality on us. Why does God care about our sex life? Well, I want to present you with three theories. Theory one, God hates fun. God is an unhappy, grumpy old man who lives in the sky. Sex is fun, therefore sex makes God angry. <laughs> this is a view that is often proliferated by the enemies of God. Because if we can make him the grumpy old man in the sky who hates fun, well, who wants to follow that? And it's really just that simple. If you look at the Bible, which is our primary source 
for understanding who God is, we see something very different. God created man and God created woman, and that includes all their parts. He made them that way. He made sex feel like sex feels. He gave us a drive and an urge and a desire to do it. What kind of sadistic bastard would he have to be to create us the way that we are and then tell us, never do it? The underlying ideology behind that is God is a, is a, is a sadist. He would have to be to make us the way that he made us and then tell us sex is wrong, sex is evil. On top of that, God commands sex in the Bible, and he's not really in the habit of commanding things that he says are evil. In fact, he doesn't do that ever. He says in Genesis 9, 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And God understands there's only one way that happens. He's saying, I made you to grow and fill the earth with people. So that theory doesn't really hold up. Theory number two is like it, but it's a little more nuanced. Sex is only for procreation. Okay, we look at the Bible, we look at that, go and be fruitful and multiply. So sex is a necessary evil in order to populate the earth. God doesn't like it. It's dirty, it's filthy, uh, it's, it's, it's not something that, that's good, but we gotta procreate. So uh, sex is not to enjoy it is expressly for the purpose of making babies. And our job is to make as many as babies as possible while enjoying sex as little as possible during our time here on earth. And this has been somewhat propagated by Christians who have taken this position of they're very uncomfortable, they are prudish, they're very, oh, well, you know, we don't want to talk about it and it's, it's very private and it's very hush-hush and, you know, we would never get up and talk about sex in a, in a group of people and, and let's just, it's just something that goes over here and it's just for making babies. I think one of the predominant voices that has advanced this idea, now they're not doing it in a way where they think it's good, they are critiquing it, but is in a show like Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, Handmaid's Tale is, they took two populations, the people who hate God and the people who hate men, and they said, let's make a show for them. <laughs> the Venn diagram there of people who hate God and hate men, that's their show. And it's actually a well put together show. But like the ideology that's advanced there is propaganda against Christians and particularly Christian men. And the picture there is horrendous. It's this idea, and at the root of it is this idea that sex is just for procreation. If only we had Bible verses that refuted that. Well, guess what? We do. The Bible clearly states that sex is about more than procreation. It's about unity. That sex is this powerful thing created by God where two people can come and be together in such an intimate way that their souls are affected 
It knits them together. Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This is the picture here. Before the fall of man, there are those who like to say, well, sex is the original sin. Eh, wrong. There would have been lots of sex if the fall had never happened. Because he's saying, this is the plan, guys. That you come together, you're two separate individuals with your own identities, your own personalities, your own hearts, your own souls, but that your bodies are designed to fit together in such a way where you become one. And that sex is an expression of that unity. Jesus gave commentary on that passage in Matthew 19, 6. He said, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Speaking of the power of sexuality, it's so powerful. It's so good. It's so unifying that when you do it, you should be together for life. To be ripped away from somebody who you have been joined with in this way is very detrimental. It's very painful, and it's outside of God's design. According to the Bible, sex is a physical expression of love between a husband and a wife. It's not just for procreation. Check out Song of Solomon. Chapter seven, verse six. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb that palm tree and I will take hold of its fruit. That doesn't sound like someone who's just rigidly looking to make a baby. That sounds like someone who's looking to take pleasure and express unity and love to their spouse, which is absolutely what the Bible is saying. Let's look at the New Testament. This is a very important verse, 1 Cor 7, 5. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Think about what's being said here. He doesn't say stop depriving one another because I told you to be fruitful and multiply. He says to the husband and wife, it is good for you to be together, for you to dwell in unity, to have sex, and don't deprive one another because it leaves you open to temptation if you do. You are God's provision to meet a need that God gave you and if you deny one another, you're opening the door for all kinds of calamity. So don't do that much. Don't deny one another, but come together in love and unity because that is part of what sex is for. So theory number one, God hates sex. Theory number two, sex is only for procreation. They're wrong. They're dead wrong. They're unbiblical. Anyone who holds that position really needs to read their Bible a little more carefully because the verses I just showed you make it pretty clear that it's not wrong because it's fun and it's not just for procreation. So what is it for? 
God wants only good things for us. Think about, if you're a parent, think about your disposition towards your children. You want good things for them, not bad things. You want them to be healthy and happy and whole and joyful and protected and safe. You want them to live meaningful lives of purpose. You want them to have the joy of love and marital sex. You want them to have children. You want them to grow old and die peacefully in their beds. That's what every parent should want for their children. That life is a great life. And we are pretty messed up people. And if we, as screwed up and as selfish as we are, want that kind of good thing for our children, how much more does God, who is not selfish and not broken and not twisted, want that kind of good thing for us? God created sex as this incredibly powerful and wonderful, meaningful expression of unity And it's not that a Bible-believing Christian thinks sex is dirty, so we shouldn't do it. A Bible-believing Christian thinks sex is so good and so powerful and so meaningful and so wrought with unity and connection that we should never do it with someone we're not committed to for the rest of our lives in a monogamous relationship called marriage. That's the picture. It's physical, it's emotional, and according to the Bible, it's spiritual, and it's good. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God, and in its proper context, it can bring great joy and warmth and affection and unity, and God wants good things for us. So the Bible sanctions sex for much more than just procreation. And like any good father, God wants good things for his children. However, if you misuse it and you apply it for things that it was not designed for and it was not intended for, then all kinds of pain is the result, not just for you, but for chains down the road of other people. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, flee immorality, pornea. Every other sin that a man, man commits is outside of the body, but the pornea man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Sexual sin is set apart from all other sin by this verse. Not because it's necessarily more evil, but because it's more destructive. It does harm. And so he singles it out and says, every other thing you do is sort of external, but this is, this is going to affect your soul. People say, well, you know, you just need to do it more with more people, and, and, and then that feeling goes away. That's the very definition of hardening your heart. And people that do that, what they express is that they are unable to have intimacy. They're unable to be close. And they don't know why. They feel like they're 
having sex. They're out there. They're trying to connect. And they're connecting and they're connecting and they're connecting and they're connecting. And they're in this spiral, feeling like, what's wrong? I don't understand. Why am I so empty? And why do I feel so alone? Why do I feel so divided? It's because sex is so powerful, it creates a union that is meant to go on for the rest of our lives. He says in first, and back in First Thess, verse four and five, then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and in honor, not in lustful passion, like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Use sex within your marriage in a powerful way. Don't be destroyed by it like everyone else. Think about this. Our society has a lot of problems, okay? But sex and an unbiblical view of sexuality is actually at the heart of an incredible list of those problems. Pedophilia, abortion, sex trafficking, rape, prostitution, adultery, divorce, and pornography. Just to start. I mean, I literally... Three seconds. We could go on and on and on about if, if we could change one thing about our culture that we would view sex God's way. Think about the, the pain, the suffering, the death, the disease, the trauma that would be avoided. Any father would want his children to be protected from all of these things, wouldn't he? If he didn't, he wouldn't be good. And there's only one way, God says. It's to use sex the way it was designed. Obviously, our culture sees things differently. We live in an increasingly liberal time where the morality of sexuality is being diminished to a bodily function. Statistics show that over 80% of Americans have sex before marriage. It's estimated Americans spend upwards of $15 billion a year on pornography. Let's put that in context. The NBA makes $7.4 billion a year. Hollywood, every Hollywood movie combined, 11.1. Netflix, 11.7. The NFL, 14 billion. And the middle conservative estimate on porn is 15 billion. It's the biggest sport, pastime, that takes up more of our time and more of our money than any other form of entertainment we have. It's a testament to the power of sexuality on one hand and the destructive nature that's of how it's being wrought in our culture in another. For a lot of people, sex is no big deal. You know, you kick the tires, you go for a test drive before you get serious about a commitment. I remember I wasn't raised as a Christian and unfortunately I was sexually active when I was a teenager. But when I became a Christian, I decided to bring my life as best I could within line with God's sexual ethics. And I had a couple of non-Christian friends that were gonna be in my wedding. We were hanging out the night before uh, my wedding and they were like, 
so have you guys had sex yet? And I was like, no. And their jaws dropped. They were just like, really? You've done everything else though, right? And I was like, uh-uh. And my one friend, he looked at me and he goes, how do you know she's not a dude? I said, uh, I'm taking it on faith, brother. <laughs> I mean, the shock, and this was 25 years ago, the shock of that, you know, was so, I mean, it was, they acted like I was being irresponsible. Like I was buying a home sight unseen, right? That I was doing something that was, that was inherently dangerous. And that's the way this is viewed in our culture today. People constantly hook up and move on because they tell themselves that this is no big deal. It's no big deal. And yet our colleges are rampant with depression, with suicidal ideation, with Prozac, with alcohol abuse, where people are trying to constantly suppress the truth that they are hurting and they are hurting themselves by messing with something that's so powerful and they completely misunderstand. 70% of people in our country cohabitate before marriage. And they say the Bible's old fashioned, that's the old way of thinking about things. It doesn't work, we've evolved behind us. This sex stuff only applies to ancient culture. It doesn't apply today. Well, fortunately, God knew that argument was coming. And Paul says, in the very next verse, seven and eight, God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What a powerful thing. He's saying, listen, this isn't cultural. This is the designer and creator, the architect of the human body and the soul telling you this is powerful stuff that can destroy you and it can destroy a culture. This doesn't stand for Paul's time. This stands for all time because it's true. Like we said, 70% of couples... Uh, cohabitate. There's numerous studies. If we weren't trying to get done in half an hour, I would read you some of the studies where it shows that people who cohabitate are at higher risk for divorce and tend to have less marital satisfaction. Between 40 and 50% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. It used to be closer to 60%, but what happened was we stopped bothering to get married. So the divorce rate's going down because the marriage rate is going down. But there's more sex outside of marriage happening than ever. These apps where you can swipe right and hook up and just connect for a quick physical expression and then never see that person again, they're designed to connect people who want to destroy themselves and are willing to run others over in the process. There's more cohabitation, there's rampant divorce, there's more sexual addiction, there's more broken families, there's more disease, more abortion, and more sex crimes 
because we have the wrong understanding of what this is. Let's talk about abortion for a second. <gasps> oh, are we allowed to talk about that? Estimated average of 1 million abortions a year for the last 50 years. What do we do with that? Should it be legal? That's the question, right? Let me submit to you, that is the wrong question. You can argue either side of that argument. But let's just imagine for a second that we took all the energy and all the money and all the manpower and all the hate and all the anger and all the strong feelings about pro-life, pro-choice. And we just said, stop. Let's just stop for one second. Is abortion the primary problem here? Whether we allow abortions or not allow abortions, is that the main issue? Or is the issue that people are getting pregnant who don't want to have babies? If you stop that, it wouldn't matter whether abortion was illegal or legal because it wouldn't exist. If we had God's view of sexuality, we wouldn't have abortion and we wouldn't have this fight. And I don't care if you're pro-choice or you're pro-life, I think any sane, rational person would agree it would be better to have no abortions because they're not needed. So why not pour our energy into discipleship, into equipping and teaching and reaching out, especially to young people who need to understand what we've just discussed right here how many hundreds or even thousands of abortions have been avoided in this church alone because we have a high school and college ministry of 2,000 people who have said, like I said, I'm living the wrong way. I want to do something different. I, I'm breaking myself. And who have no idea, no clue of how their lives, their relationships, their fulfillment, their purpose, and their happiness could change by inviting God into their lives and trying to bring how they live in line with what he says is true. Our increasing animalistic view of sex demeans the human spirit. We are not animals. We have spirits. We have souls. And those are very much in play when we have sex. God designed it that way. And the reason this is important, the reason that we're talking about this is because God wants something better for us. Something greater, something good, something whole, healthy marriages, healthy sex lives. Isaiah 55, eight says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, your, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And I think sex is an incredible example of that. We think it's like blowing your nose. He thinks it's something that we should only do with one person ever because it's so Amazing and powerful. This is all 
motivated by God's love. The enemies of God will tell you he's a prude, he hates fun, he just wants babies, but he doesn't want sex, he doesn't want joy, he doesn't want unity, he doesn't want love, he wants obedience. But that is propaganda. That is not who he is. And that is not why he made sex. Psalm 37, four says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So what should we do? Well, God doesn't expect us to get our sex lives straightened out before we come to him. We're gonna need him if we're gonna change. Some of us have developed such a deep groove and pattern of behavior, whether it's porn or whether it's sex outside of marriage or whatever it is, that we need the power of God to change. And he stands there ready and willing. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we have gone on and wreaked havoc on others and ourselves, God is just waiting for us to give up the fight and come home, to turn to him in faith and say, I need your help, not only in this area, God, but in all areas. I need your forgiveness. I need Jesus Christ's death on the cross to apply to me. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. And I'm not saying I'm going to live my life perfectly. But let's see where this thing goes. In John 6, 29, Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what God wants. He wants you to believe in him. To believe that his way is different It's true, and it will lead to a better life for you because he loves you, and he wants good things for you. The good news is, is no matter how far you've gone, no matter how much damage you may have produced in others, had forced upon you, all the pain that we have because of our sexual past can be healed with God's power. Isaiah 55, seven says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The point here is not to guilt trip. It's not to cajole. It's not to make you feel bad. It's not to tear you up. It's not to traumatize you. It is to say, it is not our job to condemn. It is our job to confess. We have done things. We have caused this pain. We have hurt other people. We have lived outside of what we believe and know to be true. We are just as guilty as anyone else, but we are saved and we are forgiven. And so can anyone else. And then to go out and teach about God's love and give people the correct picture, the correct vision for who he is, what he's about, and why he has opinions about things like sex and why they're better and lead to a life of fullness and happiness for those who don't know him. God, there's so much wrong. There's so much pain and there's so much people, so many people that are valuable, that are wonderful, that are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
and they're destroying themselves and others from a lack of understanding. You truly have the words of life. I thank you for how many good marriages I know, how many couples I know that have rich lives together, which includes their sex lives. And for the model and the picture that you put forward for us of unity and connectedness and harmony. I just pray, God, for any married couples here that are not experiencing that, I pray that they'd have a real conversation about what their needs are and how they can get help. And I pray for the singles here, God, who are longing for that kind of connection. I pray that they will be strengthened and have patience and that they'll trust in you, that you want good things for them. And I pray for our time here that we'll have good fellowship and good hanging out. And I pray that we'll be able to come back next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.